Hello, and welcome back to Stairway to ATJ. We have missed all you ATJ lovers out there. We look forward to returning to our monthly release schedule. So look for a new episode uh, from us in your podcast queue in April. But first, let's get on with today's topic, evictions and housing. For those new to the podcast, Stairway to ATJ is a CBA podcast that deals with all things access to justice. We see access to justice as encompassing all efforts to provide people the opportunity to use the justice system when they are in need of a legal remedy. I am Anthony Pereira, a pro bono coordinator for Mental Volunteer Lawyers, which is the pro bono arm of the uh, Denver Bar Association. And I'm Mia Kotnick, the Access to Justice Program Manager for the Colorado Bar Association. Well, despite federal and state eviction moratoriums, putting a pause on certain types of evictions during COVID-19, housing instability remains a major concern for families across Colorado. And while the evictions crisis seems particularly pronounced during this pandemic, there were major access to justice issues that existed long before COVID-19. This episode of Stairway to ADJ is going to cover evictions and housing instability and how those impact access to justice throughout Colorado. We're going to feature Liz Jones from Metro Volunteer Lawyers in our pro bono corner. And then we'll feature interviews with Jenny Weary, who is the Executive Director of Alpine Legal Services, Megan O'Byrne, a supervising attorney in the Housing Department for Colorado Legal Services, and Amanda Pearson. Uh, former county judge and uh, current development director of Printa. First, let's head over to the pro bono corner. The pro bono corner gives you a chance to hear about pro bono opportunities and programs addressing access to justice issues from every corner of the state. If you would like to be featured or know of a program that should be featured, email us at atjpodcast at cobar.org. In this episode's Pro Bono Corner, we have with us Liz Jones. She is the Family Law Court Program Coordinator for Metro Volunteer Lawyers. Liz, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So my name is Liz Jones, and I'm the Family Law Court Program Coordinator with Metro Volunteer Lawyers. Um, And through this family law court program, or we call it FLCP for short, we help applicants with relatively uncomplicated, uncontested family law cases, primarily dissolution of marriage and allocation of parental responsibilities, or just divorce and custody for people who maybe aren't as familiar with the family law jargon. Um, And through this program, our applicants technically represent themselves pro se, but they're assisted throughout the process by MVL staff and volunteers. And Liz, what counties does this program serve? We serve Denver, Adams, Jefferson, and Douglas counties. And can you share us with a um, recent success story about your program? As far as, I, I don't know if I can think of one particular success story, um, but lately with everything going on due to COVID, I just think FLCP in general has been a success story. Um, There are so many pro se parties out there who don't know how to navigate the family law system on their own. And through this family law court program, we're able to help them complete the paperwork to file their case, take care of all those procedural steps, and then finally get permanent orders so that they're able to resolve their family law issues. And they're always just so grateful to get the help that they can. 
It sounds like a really rewarding um, experience for volunteers. How can our listeners get involved? Um, they can get involved by going to our website, denbar.org MVL and completing a sign-up sheet. And there are really two ways that volunteers can get involved with FLCP. First, we have the client meetings is what we call them, where they can meet with an applicant either by phone or by video conference, whichever is easiest for them, and complete all of the initial paperwork that they need to file their case. So we provide all the paperwork and information on what needs to be done. And it's just the basic JDF forms like the petition, the summons, the sworn financial statement, um, and make sure that all that's done completely and correctly. And then the second phase where volunteers can get invo involved is the permanent orders hearings. And again, we provide all the paperwork. We even have a script that volunteers can use if they don't have family law experience. And for the permanent orders hearings, again, you just help prepare all of the final paperwork, the proposed orders. We have a motion and consent to enter and withdraw. And then the volunteers just do a limited entry of appearance for the hearing that day. Um, again, you can sign up on our website or you can email me at ejones at denbar.org. Sounds like a wonderful way to volunteer and help out some low-income families. Um, and no experience required. So it's a wonderful way to, to give back. Thank you so much, Liz. Thank you. Today's interview will focus on evictions and housing instability, both before and during the COVID-19 pandemic. We are joined by three guests today from various parts of Colorado. However, all three of these women are on the front lines of the impending evictions crisis. First, I'd like to introduce you to Jenny Weary. She has been a mediator and a collaborative family law attorney for most of her professional career. In 2018, she moved to Colorado with her husband and their three boys. She is now the executive director of Alpine Legal Services. Alpine Legal Services is a private nonprofit civil legal assistance agency dedicated to upholding fundamental legal rights in Garfield, Pickin, and Western Eagle counties. She is also our first returning guest to stay, Stairway to ATJ. We are so honored to have her back. You can also hear her discuss Alpine Legal Services Ask a Lawyer hotline in our pro bono corner of episode one. We also have with us Megan O'Byrne who, went, like myself, went to American University, Washington College of Law. Megan O'Byrne is a supervising attorney in the Denver Housing Unit at Colorado Legal Services. Her work focuses on preventing evictions of low-income tenants throughout the Denver metro area. And prior to moving to Denver, Megan worked in New York City as an eviction defense attorney, mostly recently with the Bronx Defenders. And last but not least, I would like to introduce you to Amanda Pearson. She uses the pronoun she, her, hers, and comes from a white middle-class background and did not have significant exposure to adverse childhood experiences growing up. She pursued the practice of law after reading about the impact of the civil rights litigation as a child. Amanda, a Colorado University Law School graduate, has been a member of the Colorado Bar since 1987. She practiced primarily civil litigation and child protection law in the frontier communities of the San Luis Valley. A sense of fairness took her down the judicial path, where she presided as a municipal and part-time county judge for a combined 25 years, simultaneously with her law practice. 
That same sense of fairness helped her realize that precedent, rules of procedure, legal reasoning, and the adversarial process were not sufficient to assure justice for many. So she went back to school to find a way to improve the systems and remove barriers to fair results, obtaining a master's in organizational leadership from Gonzaga University in 2013. She is currently pursuing her PhD in organizational learning performance and change from Colorado State University. She retired from the bench in 2016 and began working at a local nonprofit, La Puente, as the development director in order to continue a quest of practical knowledge to balance her academic pursuits. La Puente provides a network of dignity and strength-based services to help the homeless. It also provides tools to address the impact of generational poverty, um, to strengthen families, and to support those in crisis. Great. So welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. I'm going to jump right in um, into our first question. Uh, this question is going to be for all of you, but I'll call on you guys individually. Um, and it's a simple question to ask. It's a hard question to answer, I, I believe. So in a sentence or two, what does access to justice mean to you? Uh, we'll begin with you, Amanda. Well, uh, to me, uh, at a practical level, it's an understanding by each person of the remedies the court can provide, a belief that courts in providing those remedies will do so fairly, the ability to access those remedies without barrier, and upon accessing the legal system that they come away with that greater understanding of the remedies bolstering their belief that those remedies will be fairly addressed within the system. At an aspirational level, it's well said by Justice Marshall Harlan's dissenting opinion in Plessy v. Ferguson, that all citizens are equal before the law, the humblest is the peer of the most powerful. A wonderful definition, very um, comprehensive and very much about the understanding of, of the judicial system. How about you, Megan? What's access to justice mean to you? I think uh, I, I took a broader view of this question. And um, to me, I think it means at the bare minimum that our justice system doesn't perpetuate the systemic inequities um, that are in society, such as racism, poverty. I think that any steps that move towards having a justice system that addresses and equalizes those those inequities is is would would be getting closer to access to justice or true access to justice. I like that. How about you, Jenny? What does access to justice mean to you? Well, I just completely borrowed a definition from um, the Chicago Bar Association, actually, because I was I was trying to put the words in my head, and and this was the best definition I've come across. Um, a person facing a legal issue has timely and affordable access to the level of legal help they need to get a fair outcome on the merits of their legal issue and can walk away believing they got a fair shake in the process. Those are wonderful def definitions all around. Um, and today we're obviously talking about evictions and housing. So why are ho housing challenges and access to justice issue? I'll, I can answer this. Um, I think that that the system for evictions, uh, well, obviously evictions are part of the housing challenge in that they are what often cause people to become unhoused. Um, and the eviction process can be not a very 
good um, example of an ideal access to justice uh, system in that they are summary proceedings. So they're intended to move quickly, get people out of their homes quickly, um, and are oftentimes in, in many states, including Colorado, the laws, at least from my perspective, are a lot more landlord friendly than tenant friendly. And so if you use Jennifer's definition, I don't think many tenants walk away from the uh, eviction process feeling like they got a fair shake. Um, I often don't walk away from the eviction process feeling like my clients got a fair shake even though they were represented. So um, I think that having a system that oftentimes works as kind of an eviction mill is a huge is a huge challenge for keeping people housed. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, that's oftentimes how our how our eviction system works in, in Colorado and in a lot of states, not just Colorado. From a judicial perspective, what I would say is, is um, building upon what was just the comment is that their judicial is going to look at the business aspect and treat it only as a business aspect and completely forget that um, housing is one of the basic human needs, shelter, one of your basic human needs. And the courts are not very good at meshing those two kind of pieces together. And so they err on the side of business, I believe. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And also another factor is that most landlords are represented in evictions and almost no, no tenants are represented and that just creates a huge power imbalance in, you know, in the ability to navigate the court system, to understand the laws, what, understand what a legal defense is, um, in, in your ability to negotiate, all those things. I'd probably just add that the, the timeliness is so key. Um, you know, where you're going to live um, determines oftentimes your ability to hold down a job and where your kids go to school. And, and frankly, the level of, of cortisol that's impacting your ability to function um, and, and to pay attention to if the light's green or red, frankly, sometimes. Um, and so, I mean, pretty much every aspect of your life is tied to, to, to housing and, and your stability um, in, in your home. So lack of resolution for housing is costly for, for an entire community. Especially in these in rural areas, um, somewhat probably in Pitkin County, but in our areas, we don't have public transportation. So um, um, if your house is not close to your workplace, you, you can't work. And if you lose your license, um, you there's oftentimes you can't work. And that's a, a huge access to anything fair or just. Mm -hmm. Coming to court in Sawatch was a, was a poor hour deal, um, and which, which means half a day's labor, which is really um, problematic for folks. I mean, I, I want to echo what Amanda said, even, and this is like a very micro thing, but even in the Denver metro area where I work, you know, the the evictions happen in, in um, Arapahoe County in the Littleton courthouse, but most of the people facing eviction live further east in, Arap in Aurora. Mm. And similarly in Adams County, the courthouse is in Brighton and there, there is public transfer, but it's not that easy for someone who might live way on the west side of the county. So, you know, just the getting to court is a huge barrier for a lot of people all over the state. I mean, obviously it's compounded in rural areas, but um, yeah. 
I mean, that's obviously access to technology is is a a piece of of being able to get to court in COVID times, but it is also helpful for some people who do have that ability because now they aren't figuring out how to get to court, at least where courts are virtual. And Megan, just so that we're all on the same kind of playing field towards understanding, could you walk us through the eviction process just generally? Sure. So in it's a little different right now because of COVID. There have been different um, laws passed and moratoriums and executive orders and a CDC order from the federal government. But typically, broadly speaking, what happens is a tenant gets a notice. How long the notice is is going to depend on what the case is about and what kind of housing they have. Um, but they get what's either like a demand or a notice to quit or some kind of notice saying, do something or we're going to take you to court. And that something could be pay your rent, stop making noise, move. Um, so it's gonna change depending on what's going on. And then once the notice period passed, if, if you haven't done the thing, move or pay rent, then the landlord's gonna file an eviction um, and they have to file a, summons and complaint when the summons is what tells the tenant you have to go to court and the complaint is what is supposed to tell the tenant what the case is about. Um, typically, the tenant then has seven days to answer the, I mean, they, they have seven days to answer the complaint. You have to file an answer. The summons has a return date and time at which time they're supposed to go to court and pre-COVID would be defaulted if they didn't show up in court at that time and tell the court that, that they were there. Now courts are doing, different courts are doing things differently, but they have a date and time by which they need to go to court and file an answer, basically. And the answer is where the tenant has the opportunity to raise their legal defenses. A lot of pro, pro se tenants don't understand that you can't just say, I'm trying very hard to get the money. <laughs> you know, that's not, unfortunately, yes, that's should be something we are considering, but it's not because it's not an actual legal defense to an eviction. Um, and then depending on what jurisdiction you're in, the trial can happen that same day. Some jurisdictions, mostly in more rural communities, have the trial the same day as the answers do. Um, most of the counties in the metro area schedule the trials a week out from the day the answer is. So the whole process from notice to trial to potential eviction is usually less than a month. Um, or about a month. And then if you have it, you have a trial. If you win, you get to stay. If you lose, the sheriff can come in as little as 48 hours to um, evict you. Usually in, in Denver area, counties, it takes longer because the sheriffs have a backlog of evictions, but they can the law says that they can come 48 hours later once the judgment is issued. So that's a basic overall start to finish. Amanda, do you have anything to add from the judicial perspective or um, the rural perspective for that matter? Well, I think that the, it is really a challenging thing for judges because kicking people out of their houses is, is a horrifying um, result. Uh, but the judge is supposed to interpret the law, apply the law, and the law says um, not being able to pay your rent is not a defense. To, um, to an eviction. And if you don't have a defense, then you get evicted. Um, so that's the, the basic 
the basic bottom line. One of the things that we've been trying to do, um, I think both Jennifer and, and myself is try to, to move the process out of the court's hands to a certain degree and allow there to be other um, options available. But um, if you get to court uh, um, and that's all you have as a defense, um, then you're gonna lose. Even if you have, you think you have a defense, um, if you're a pro se uh, representative, an unrepresented um, tenant, that's really hard to defend yourself. And so in, unlike in the big city, in the rural areas where, where I presided, the, there was very few lawyers that represented anybody in anything. And, and the landlords weren't big corporate um, landlords. They were little moms and pops who are just as impacted by these, these uh, situations as, as the tenants are in a lot of ways. And, um, and they, they, the law is the law and you just try to figure out how to um, um, yourself as a judge sometimes negotiate a little bit extra time, right? So what if, I mean, you don't have a defense, but landlord, can we give them until after Christmas? It seems really harsh to make somebody right before Christmas. <laughs> you try to do that, sure. but it's but it's not a it's not really our role, and um, they're very limited in what we can do and what a judge can do in an eviction. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think I think that the laws are just truly unfriendly to tenants. There is not, um, for example. Uh, the demand period, like when a landlord serves you with a demand for rent right now, it's, it will, with some exceptions because of um, the CARES Act and because of federal and then and federally subsidized housing, but in straight private landlord tenant um, cases in Colorado, the demand period is 10 days. If you don't pay your rent in 10 days and you have all the money on the 11th day, the landlord doesn't have to take the money. And if the landlord doesn't want to take the money, and you don't have another defense to the eviction, then that's it. You're going to be evicted, even if you came up with all the money. So, I mean, that's a, an example of the laws just being very heavily favored towards landlords here. Whereas in a lot of states, there's a right to cure up until eviction or even sometimes after the eviction. So um, Amanda's right, the, the law is the law and the judges are doing their best to apply it. Um, and unfortunately, it usually favors the landlord. So we have all of you on because um, either yourself or your organization helps with evictions and housings in one way or another. Um, so as far as the bright side a little bit, um, I just kind of want you all to go through and, and tell me how your organization um, helps with evictions. Sure, I can start. Um, I, as was mentioned in the introduction, work for Colorado Legal Services. We are a statewide organization. We have offices throughout the state, I think seven offices, and we represent people in all of the counties in Colorado, obviously. We are primarily, we have more attorneys in the Denver metro area than in the rural offices. Um, and we, anyone who calls, pretty much anyone who calls us with a housing issue will get at, at the minimum advice from an attorney. Um, in Denver, in my in our the practice in Denver, we often represent tenants um, up to and including a trial or a full representation, as we call it. Um, but we also do a lot of assisting tenants with drafting answers. Um, so prior to COVID, we had 
in-person clinics in the Denver County Courthouse and the Adams County Courthouse where we would help any tenant who came to us uh, write an answer and, and then they would file it pro se. Um, now we have a, a phone system where people can call in when their answers do and we help them draft the answer and try and help them get it filed. Um, and then we, I, you know, we, anyone who calls us, we look at their case and determine if, if it warrants additional services. So that for some people that could just be negotiating with the landlord's attorney or landlord. And then some people it could be, like I mentioned, full representation where we take the trial, are willing to take the case to trial if that's where it goes. It just depends on, you know, we have different, obviously we have limitations on who we can serve. We have income limits. We are fed, uh, funded by the federal government. So we have limitations on what, whether or not we can represent undocumented individuals. Um, and then beyond that, we're looking at, we're trying to help preserve affordable housing for as many people as possible. So if a tenant has housing that's affordable to them and they have a legal defense or a way to help them stay housed, we're likely to take on that case for something more than just advice. Um, if, 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 you know, if the house is really affordable, to them and they don't have a ton of defenses, the tenant may only get advice from us. So uh, we're, our primary focus is preventing evictions for people who will be able to maintain their housing. Jenny, what are you guys doing at Alpine Legal Services? So uh, we partnered with um, COVID-19 Eviction Defense Project for them to do our initial screenings for those who call us um, or, or those who, who speak English <clears throat> and can access an online form, an online intake form. Uh, so they refer cases to us if someone needs direct representation in our, in our parachute to Aspen service area. We also hired an attorney to cover this year. Um, uh, legal aid for we're providing legal aid for tenants this year um, through a grant that we received um, and so in general we're, we're staffed to to provide information referrals and direct representation for tenants right now in our service area so Puente, where i'm currently working is not in the eviction um, justice access to justice business but um, because the, the ju judges here are, they're judges like everywhere, they have limits. Um, La Puente does provide um, financial assistance to pay rent, to pay mortgage, to um, keep your utilities on. We funnel that funds, we funnel those funds from the, the uh, federal government and from the state and from foundations. So we've been able to um, one, the hotline for for rent for assistance and eviction is our number. Um, the courts have approved uh, mediation. We funded mediation so mm -hmm. that um, no one can go through mediation, go through the court eviction process until they've done mediation. We've done it so we can get it set up. We we worked with a, a, a while we were setting up. We worked with a a front range mediation service. And now we have our own more adaptable mediation service to, to do mediation. We're working with the Sherlock, the, the self-represented litigate coordinator for the 12th Judicial District. But all of those calls start with La Puente so that we, people don't, the, the biggest problem is people don't know that there are services available to them here. Um, I, I, I introduced myself as my, as my white privileged middle, um, middle-class self because um, 
I've learned work, working for my entire adult career in the San Luis Valley is that is that not everybody even comes close to thinking like I do, um, even understands the resources or trusts the resources. That's my access to, dress, to, to justice definition includes trusting that if you do something, it'll be beneficial to you. And so many people have not had that. There are power differentials for so many different reasons. And so reaching out to those people, building trust with those folks, convincing those folks to, to use our our access. We're the sides of Massachusetts, the San Luis Valley, and, and the 12 judicial districts. Um, the, the districts. So, so you're. So we're trying to reach folks, little tiny towns, um, people who don't know internet, people who don't watch TV, people who don't have access. So, so we're sending. We have a food bank network um, across the San Luis Valley. We're putting posters up there. We've got the city of Alamosa to put the our, our notice, our informational notice in their water bills. So that, um, that that they're getting the water bill, they'll they'll know. Uh, so and and then we have through the the state funding, we've been able to keep a lot of people in in their um, homes, both mortgage assistance and and eviction assistance. And for the the undocumented folks, um, we are have been able to acquire separate non-state or federal funding, which have allowed us to help the the. Uh, the um, non-documented folks, or, or even the documented folks who are kind of concerned about asking for assistance because they don't want it to be a hit against them. Probably echo what Amanda said about um, essentially to do eviction work right now is to be a caseworker right now because you have to be able to have really strong community partnerships with people who are providing economic assistance. You have to know what the state is providing and be able to get the word out to landlords about the property owner preservation program, for example. You have to really know what ex what rental assistance they've already received or what other needs they have that's going to stabilize their their life and and you know get them to a place where they're able to you know address um, their legal issues so so I think what you know I, I I would applaud what what exactly what Amanda's saying in terms of um, there it isn't just a legal silo you can't just look at the look at the case and go to court and that's it you really have to look at a lot of overlapping issues and kind of be able to unpack um, a really complex situation almost in every case yeah i would echo that i mean we have in addition to the legal work we have paralegals who assist clients in navigating the very oftentimes cumbersome and complicated rental assistance applications. We work with a social work intern who helps us identify other issues who may and may provide referrals or help clients identify alternative housing. So it is definitely more than just a legal case, although we are a legal services organization, so that's our bread and butter, but we are working on trying to, to be more holistic in our approach and, and understanding that you can't just if you stop the eviction, it's coming back next month if they if you haven't resolved some of the underlying problems. Yeah, I've been able to split both of those worlds with having both um, the legal and the, the judicial connections and the La Puente connections so that La Puente is getting to do the things that we do well um, and not trying to rely on our legal services who are, part, who are a partner with us in our mediation and keeping us up to date on especially what the laws are and the changes in the laws are but we've been able to kind of say, let us have that and work in partnership with the legal, the legal side. So the people who are in doing what they do best get to do it. 
it's really cool to hear how people are out there trying to help in, in a variety of different ways. Um, whether it's representation, whether it's a more holistic approach, whether it's food banks, just trying to help people out in any um, way possible. Um, so my assumption, though, is that evictions were an access to justice issue before COVID. Um, so I was hoping you guys could highlight some um, ATJ issues that you guys saw um, that existed pre-quarantine. Well, I can start on more of a, a ground level thing. I think it's true. I, I, I actually was able to speak. Um, I think, Jennifer, you and I were able to speak when I was seeking funding to try to figure out what we were going to do and was able to use what uh, you were doing um, as a framework for us. But we don't have adequate housing, just like um, there's not affordable housing in the Denver metro area. We don't have, um, nobody has done a study, a housing study, they're right in the middle of it now, but it's, it, the last one was well before I started practicing in 1987 down here. Um, so, so people haven't been, haven't caught up with those housing. So ha just no housing. Um, and then for the folks that we particularly serve uh, generally, even pre-COVID is, is um, we are really good at getting people into housing, but these are folks who are, are they have significant um, uh, needs, uh, mental health needs, other, other kinds of needs, which don't, aren't serious enough to, to require some kind of institutional setting, but they can't comply with landlord tenants. They're, you know, the, the, the rules, they can't do it. So we get them into a house and then it's this cycle of eviction and there's this gap of people that we aren't able to serve because they need more um, then, then the house, then the landlords are going to put up with, but they need to be in housing. And it's this vicious, vicious circle. We have this woman, we got her into, uh, a we got her off the street, we got her into housing. She can't take it. She can't take care of herself. She has no ability to set boundaries and she keeps violating rules, not her, but by letting people into her house. Right. And, and, and so they take advantage of her and then the landlord um, kicks her out. And those, those stories are over and over again. And then I would say the, the interesting thing is we can't, um, we can't get people out of homelessness because they have pets that are really, really important to them. And you can't find housing that allows pets almost anywhere, even, even at my level of ability to pay for a, for a rental unit, right? So, so those kind of things, just these really emotional, caring needs um, things that Keep, would keep people out of jail. Would you know keep all these these expensive costs that are associated with with the 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 folks living on the street. If we had housing that could help support people with these kind of really needs that that keep them from being in a stabilized situation. Yeah, I think um, yeah, what Amanda said is 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 right. Uh, the lack of supportive housing, the fact there is no real supportive, truly supportive housing that I know of in the Denver metro area, or if there is, it's very, very limited. And that we see that a lot too here in Denver, where we, you know, the metro area where there's resources and, and it's just very difficult for people who have disabilities that, that make, you know, living in a private landlord tenant relationship challenging for them. Um, and then just the lack of affordable housing, you know, gentrification, all of that on a on a macro level is is contributing to increasing levels of homelessness in in the metro area. 
I think on a micro level, as far as evictions, um, I think that a filing fee for an answer and the copious amount of documentation and paperwork you need to fill out in order to get that fee waived is a huge barrier. Um, I think that requiring people to file an answer by a time certain, whereas in most other lawsuits, it's just by the end of the, the business day is a, is a huge barrier because usually that time is in the middle of the day. And if people work, they may not be able to get to the court by that time. Um, I think, uh, oh, the service rules for evictions are very lax. And I think a lot of people don't even learn about their evictions because <laughs> of the service rules. Um, and then again, just the speediness of the process. There's no discovery in evictions, which I don't know if your listeners know what discovery is, but it's common in almost every kind of civil lawsuit where you get to know the other side's case, like what evidence they have before the trial. That's not, that doesn't really exist in evictions. Um, and then just, you know, again, the laws are so unfriendly. There's no right to cure. Um, and yeah, all of that just perpetuates the high numbers of evictions that occur in this in this state and and the increasing homelessness, particularly in the metro area. Yeah, I think we've all touched on, you know, lack of inventory means lack of power for a tenant. And there's this trend toward consolidation of ownership of properties as well. So especially mobile home parks. Um, so there's less of a vested interest for a property owner who might not even live in Colorado to, to not just test the market and see what it will bear for rent. So that creates massive instability for an entire region of individuals who are the backbone of our workforce. Also, one thing I forgot to mention are, is uh, tenant blacklists where tenants are who have even been sued in evictions previous uh, landlords won't rent to them and if they have an eviction judgment on their record it's very very difficult to ever find housing again luckily there was a sealing statute that passed last legislative session so that now evictions are sealed unless there is a judgment entered um, but still having that judgment becomes like a scarlet letter and it's you know we have people calling us saying how do I get this off my record? It's been on for eight years and I, you know, it's, it's just preventing me from finding another place to live. And the other part of that that's very similar is uh, felony convictions. So, so um, it, the, the felony conviction can almost keep you out of almost all public housing, which is your affordable access. Um, and, and there's, where else are folks supposed to go? Right, uh, it's it's uh, one of the things at La Puente that I before when I was a, a child protection attorney, working with um, Adelante, the one of the housing our supportive housing and our family strengthening program. They would come to child protection court and they would offer housing to folks who couldn't get their kids back without housing, um, be, but had felonies that would prevent them from getting into public to, to public housing. Um, those kind of housing, um, it's not, it's not, doesn't have to be the same kind of supportive housing as, as many people get, but just to be able to get into housing kept families together, and that doesn't happen near often enough. So Megan and Amanda, you both um, mentioned supportive housing. Can one of you uh, tell us what, what that term means? Well, there's, there's different kinds of supportive, supportive housing. I think the most uh, common or the, the biggest push now is, is um, housing first. 
to get people into housing and then you offer supportive services and and we do that um, in our we, we, we've got the state vouchers to do that we've got about maybe 24 units that we we monitor there's not I don't know that there's anything else um, that that is, and in the valley that really does that supportive but it's it's um, we offer we don't require uh, budgeting we offer you know how to become fiscally responsible how to you know sub substance abuse referrals the kind of things that could get you kicked out we try to offer um, to folks so that that uh, they can start making that that their own decisions to, to stability but there are a lot of folks who have no clue what their issues are or how to start it and and so that takes some real skill to offer those services in a way that people realize they want them. But that's that's the whole idea is, if, is get them in a house, get them off the street and then kind of help them figure out a way. We just had a long-term 10 years on the street gentleman um, get into supportive housing and, and he's lost all of his friends who are, don't, you know, they live out and, and he was a leader in that community and he was helping other people access services. He's a really kind, gentle guy um, and and now and now he's in the supportive housing and he's struggling because it's hard to, to now now people resent him for being in housing. He's not having that role of fulfillment that he had. It's a really complex thing housing is. Yeah, I mean, I think my vision is yeah. I think on-site mental health care providers, um, job training, substance abuse treatment, um, case management. Yeah. You know, obviously, depending on, on the assistance and individual needs, it would vary. But having true supportive housing is making sure that there are safety nets to help people stay housed when they're struggling and the, uh, the automatic response isn't will evict them, which is what I see in a lot of subsidized housing that's <laughs> not really supportive. But that is where a lot of people, you know, who who have experienced trauma, who have live in poverty and who live with mental health illness. You know, they live in subsidized housing and a lot of times the subsidized housing providers do not have that support. So the first reaction is, okay, we'll evict them. <laughs> and that's, I don't, that's obviously not supportive housing, so. It's really um, hard for a community sometimes to let go of, um, judgment. Um, and, and so that's what we are seeing more often than not is people are just very ashamed. They've been judged for years and, um, and, and there's just a lot of shame in asking for help. And, uh, so, so, you know, just being, being, it sounds kind of cheesy, but just being a friend to people. I know we had a, a disabled mom who was facing an eviction and we asked, you know, the question, what do you need? Um, you know, we were helping with the legal issue, but when we asked, what do you need without even any hesitation, she said, I need a friend. Um, you know, people just need somebody who's going to believe in them and is going to be there for them and not give up on them. And it's going to kind of, you know, invest in, in their, in their success. And that's hard to come by right now. I'm, um, just so impressed with each of you and your, um, very holistic perspective. It's more than that what's happening in the courtroom. Um, and we've been talking so far about the tenants, tenants perspective. Um, can any of you guys speak to the issues landlords are facing in this time? There's obvious challenges. Every landlord I've spoken to 
they don't want to kick somebody out on the street. And some property managers are experiencing incredibly high levels of stress and depression, frankly, because it's a lot. I mean, you're the grim reaper of housing. I mean, it's very stressful. So the stress alone is, is hard. Um, and then the lack of awareness of resources, um, is, has been a challenge. We're doing our best, but, um, the mom and pops who have to pay a mortgage, they don't want to kick somebody out. They don't want to do, um, but cause they've got to, they don't want to face a foreclosure. So that's, those are the obvious reasons why a lot of people are saying, well, where's legal aid for landlords? You know, we, we, we absolutely provide resources for, for landlords to understand the law and understand, um, you know, how they can access the judicial system. Um, but, but by all means, um, no one is beyond the reach of the stress and the financial impact of COVID-19. Of course, landlords are included in that. Well, and, and I will say when the, one of the things that I did when I, I started working on our eviction mitigation process, it was to reach out to um, some landlords and have them a part of the process. We, I don't think you just make a process to fit one person's need when you're, when you're trying to, to do a whole community. And my vision, my vision was, um, hey, uh, we are a community that sticks together. We have limited resources. We have figured out how to really help each other out in so many ways. So we just need to reach out to landlords to make sure they're a part of this because it would, it would be catastrophic if we had a mass of, of evictions. It would be catastrophic for our entire community, for our families. So we try to, we do a lot of education. We try to bring the, the discussion in with the players much easier for us in a smaller, um, in a smaller community. Uh, and um, and the, our access to justice committee, which I am not a part of, but we reached out to them as well. And they are trying to also do landlord um, tenant uh, type of, of forums and bring people together so that there is a communication happening. Uh, but I, I think you don't wanna leave people out of the conversation who are important to the conversation, even if you're not really happy with their side of the conversation. I, I, I'm certainly sympathetic to the smaller landlords um, and their struggles to pay, but I guess my perspective is that landlords it's a business and you're making a business choice and tenants are at risk of losing their home. And that's a huge, I just think that on the scale of what's important to me personally, as a tenant advocate, the landlord's loss is not what I'm that worried about. I understand that they have their own struggles, but I, I would rather just see people housed, honestly, but I certainly am sympathetic to their I think who subsidizes the housing is the issue, right? For you, it's somebody who's a business person who probably owns hundreds or thousands of units. For most of ours, we have we have the issue with the, the mobile home parks where people have come in and bought them. Um, they just issued an eviction of dogs. Any dog, German Shepherd, Pitbull, anything that they considered of, of, of a, a vicious type of, of personality, they just sent a 10 day notice just, just yesterday. To the, and saying you have to get rid of your dogs. And then we already know that people would be homeless instead of get rid of their dogs. So some of that arbitrary stuff we have, but most of it is people who are really either are relying on this and they'll be homeless if, if they don't get the funding. So it's, so it's kind of like who gets to subsidize the, the, um, the need of people to have families. And I 
tend to think it should be spread over um, a number of folks and not just on landlords. And, and, um, and that's why we, we uh, have been very successful and the state's been very generous with giving us funding because they know we're getting it to where it needs to be. Um, I don't know how long that will last, right? This, this um, is in going to impact our state budget highly and I'm really worried about what happens in the next year. But, but right now, um, if, if our businesses are supported and our tenants are supported, um, I think we can weather. I think it's an extraordinary event, right, uh, right now. But it's also an extraordinary event to be evicted and, and um, the, the ability to recover from eviction financially is, is huge, it's huge. And so, so to me, uh, what we're doing right now is, is we, uh, one of our foundations that, that uh, funds us has encouraged us to use um, one, one of their uh, facilitation organizations to help us bring together the group to think, okay, what's the opportunity? What have we learned from this? And how can we take it forward past COVID so that we can still address this issue? Because it's really an important issue. Definitely, it is an extraordinary and, and difficult time. Um, I was hoping you guys could highlight a, um, how COVID has impacted evictions. Um, we've touched on it throughout, but I just was hoping you guys could highlight in a little more detail. Well, I'm, I'm happy to jump in. <laughs> sure. um, so there is many, many ways COVID has. Obviously, the, the biggest factor is that the um, lack of, you know, so many people are out of work, so many people don't have money. Um, luckily, there are moratorium, there is the federal moratorium preventing evictions for non-payment for certain people. Um, but that's another, that's another thing is the laws are constantly, the laws are constantly changing around who and when can be evicted because of the executive orders, federal government orders, statutes. Um, so just making sure that we're staying on top of that. Also, um, a huge change that has been very challenging for both tenants and and uh, attorneys is the access to the courts. You know, a lot of courts are closed, um, and the the Supreme Court didn't issue a directive on on how to handle FEDs, which is the legal term for an eviction case. So, every judicial district is doing it differently. Some are allowing tenants to email in answers. Some are still requiring in-person to file answers. Um, and so just navigating that and having to know what each court is doing, it can change <laughs> day to day, um, I think is a huge COVID challenge. So then there's also just the volume for our organization. You know, we're getting a lot more people calling, a lot more evictions being filed as, you know, the governor had a more, a, a robust moratorium that ended at the end of last year. So, you know, cases have been increasing and as we, as the, you know, moratoriums end and the funding, the rental assistance runs out, we're only expecting there to be more and more. So just um, the, the anxiety of the, you know, um, the threatened eviction tsunami that every major news outlet is talking about is really um, a big part of doing this work right now. So those are some of the the big challenges we've seen. For us, um, even though we do a lot at La Puente, uh, we still are a relatively small nonprofit in a really isolated area. Um, and it, it has personally for our organization, it has, and I would guess for, for even um, Megan and Jennifer, it has stretched our capacity 
it, it has it has made us weary. It has made us um, it has shown cracks in in uh, what we do and how we do it. It has exposed that just like it's exposing the weak the 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 inequity of of who gets what service, who who um, gets to who gets to keep working and put their family at risk. Kids not being in school, the schools being at school, not school. I have a, a working mom with a, a, I think three year, I think she's three years old now. Um, who, if if it wasn't me and I was uh, somebody who's really embracing um, working moms because I was one, she might not be able to be working with us, right? Because we've had to be so adaptable, and there are people who don't have that that privilege. And so the schools having kids at school, not at school, at school, not at school has really impacted them. And then we have people who have, um, who have uh, already able to go back to work now, they, they, where they were in quarantine and there's no work to go to. And, and um, yeah. that's uh, the, the businesses that are, are not open that can't afford to hire somebody back. That's a pretty, intense situation and i would guess that's across the board as well across the the whole state yeah i think i said once recently that that the the inequality um between the haves and the have-nots frankly was like gasoline and like covid was like a match so it's just working in the parachute to aspen region that we do between dire poverty and unfathomable wealth. Um, it's disorienting, frankly, and it and COVID just kind of exposed that disparity of wealth and frankly power. And so having to urgently try to fix broken systems, because as Amanda pointed out, it's so straining for staff who are on the front lines to not see systems change and to stay in the work that they do. So we want to keep staff. We want to keep people with good minds and good hearts um, doing this work and helping people. And so, um, so helping those who have and might maybe benefit from the way things have always been and the way in the and the broken systems that exist. If if you benefit from nothing changing, how can you see? it's in your own best interest and in your community's best interest to be safe and healthy, um, to go ahead and do that hard work and to be uncomfortable, but be comfortable being uncomfortable um, and really facing the challenges, not being afraid to change and really doing the hard work that needs to be done um, so that we can um, not have the, the huge costs that we're seeing um, resulting from an unstable and an equitable So a theme that is emerging, and sadly it's a common one, is the need for funding to support these important efforts um, to keep Coloradans housed, especially in the middle of the pandemic. So we're going to listen to a, a brief interview with Andy White, the Colorado Bar Association's Director of Legislative Relations, to hear how legislative efforts have provided funding streams for local governments and nonprofits. Andy, let's hop right in. Can you tell us about what was happening in the regular 2020 session? Sure. Uh, so the, the regular session, again, um, or I should say the, the Colorado legislature generally meets from January to May uh, every year. Uh, 2020 was a little bit different. They met uh, with a pause in the middle uh, during kind of the, the height, uh, 
time of the, the lockdown that we all experienced. Um, and then they wrapped up their, their work in June. Uh, and what the legislature did uh, this June is they passed uh, two measures that provided for uh, housing assistance, direct, direct funding. Uh, and then they also provided for uh, direct utility assistance to those Colorado families that are experiencing hardships uh, related to the COVID-19 uh, economic downturn. Um, and providing that sort of immediate assistance that was on the early end um, of the of the economic downturn and, and pandemic response. So Mia talked about the regular session and COVID struck during the middle of the regular session. But I heard about like a special session. Can you tell us what, what the legislator did uh, during the special session? Sure. Uh, so, so the legislature uh, was called back in the session by the governor uh, in late November through uh, December of 2020. And the work uh, that the legislature did as it relates to eviction evictions were largely uh, building on those efforts that passed uh, earlier in the, the spring and summer. Uh, so, so building on the programs and the, the funding streams, uh, let me touch on the, the 2020 session, uh, provide a little bit of pretext here. Uh, the legislature passed uh, in its regular session uh, House Bill uh, 1410, uh, which provided $20 million in the current fiscal year ending uh, in June 2021 uh, for housing assistance, which the state provides uh, in, through a grant program to local governments and nonprofits. Uh, additionally, the House, uh, the legislature passed House Bill 1427, which was tied to the passage of Proposition EE, which was the tobacco tax. Uh, that measure passed on the November ballot, and so then that triggers uh, an $11 million distribution of funds uh, over three fiscal years, uh, starting July 1st uh, of 2021, uh, providing again uh, to the same housing development grant fund within the State Department of Local Affairs. And both, uh, both of those uh, funding um, programs, while they provide the bulk uh, of the dollars for, uh, for direct housing assistance uh, for, those, uh, for those local efforts, it did allocate um, $1.5 million and $350,000 through both of those measures for uh, eviction legal defense fund also uh, in the Department of Local Affairs. So that's what uh, the direct tie-in uh, that the legislature provided during the 2020 session. So then fast forward to uh, to the special session of 2020, again, November and, and December, the, the legislature provided additional streams of funds uh, for those for those grant programs, uh, first of which was in Senate Bill 2, an additional $60 million uh, allocated to that uh, that Department of Local Affairs grant fund for uh, for housing assistance. Uh, and there's uh, additional assistance I will note, um, $5 million for uh, food pantry uh, grants, as well as uh, $34.8 million uh, for child care centers as well, assisting those communities in, in, in particular need uh, right now. And those were through House Bill uh, 2000, I'm sorry, House Bill 1003 and House Bill 1002 respectively. Uh, from the special session this year. So there are certain um, programs, it sounds like, that are current and some that they're considering. How would a uh, Coloradan access some of these state programs? Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, and uh, the 
the measures that the that the legislature passed uh, largely were relying on existing infrastructure and funding streams set up through the the state government, and so uh, so by by directing funds uh, through the Department of Local Affairs and their Housing Development Grant Fund, uh, the state isn't the one that's really providing. Uh, the direct assistance to Coloradans in need. Rather, it's going to be the local governments, uh, nonprofits, uh, and other entities that are eligible for these uh, these funds. So, uh, so for those Coloradans who are in are in need, there are a number of good resources to find out where in your local communities uh, you can access um, these programs that are funded through these uh, state and federal dollars. Uh, I've I found that uh, housingcolorado.org uh, has a robust list of, of local resources, uh, as well as uh, at the state level, there are some some resources directing uh, individuals uh, through the Colorado Department of Local Affairs. They have a COVID-19 housing page as well, uh, rather useful, uh, as well as making sure that you check out your local governments, whether it be uh, your county or your city, uh, and, and checking out what services they may have available. I do know that, uh, of course, not all car runs have uniform uh, access to the internet. So there's also uh, 211 Colorado, uh, which is, of course, accessible online, uh, but also by phone. Um, it's, a, a, it's a program uh, funded and sponsored by the United Way uh, to help connect Coloradans to those uh, to resources as well. They have a, a number of COVID-related resources, both on their online presence uh, and also through their phone support services as well. Again, that's they're available through 211colorado.org. Uh, also, I would uh, direct folks to, to check out resources at the Colorado Housing and Finance Authority as well. Uh, and they have a, a bit more uh, information relating uh, perhaps to those who have a, a, a mortgage and not necessarily renters, but we recognize that the, uh, some of the uh, financial constraints that folks are, are facing are both for renters and for, uh, for those who, who do hold um, mortgages that are homeowners as well or in distress. Amanda, do you want to respond to what Andy had to say? Uh, you know, I I think the state, for from our purposes, from La Puente's purposes, has really um, the the two one one. We, we were we're always feeling the orphan, and that's for those who don't know. There's this this statewide um, information of how to get help. And, and I, I, my sister's a landlord in, in Gilpin County and she's not getting rent. And I said, give the t look at the 211 as a landlord, give the 211 information to your, to your tenant. I think having a, a more comprehensive one place to look at, um, at health is really valuable. Uh, and and I, I wouldn't just, um, the, I mean, what's, so yeah, they've been the state has been giving money to those who ask for it. I think the downside of that is that we have the ability to ask for it. We we have proven a record. I don't think there's a lot of um, smaller communities and re areas that really have the organizational capacity that we have built to use the funding to get the funding. And and I know that. Um, I've talked to housing folks, some public housing folks in San Luis, which is a very tiny town, trying to figure out how they should spend the resources. Should they spend it um, for internet, which, which um, is really essential right now. All these kind of decision-making um, is easier when you have other, a, a group of folks talking about what they're doing. And so I wanna just applaud the, the Bar Association who, um, when, when I 
when I started this process in, in the San Luis Valley, um, they connected me to, to Jennifer. They connected me to people who had ideas and I was able to kind of re rely on that. Um, CLS has just kept their folks. We, we have two CLS attorneys down here and, and um, they're very busy and they've kept their folks in, informed as to what we could do. And, and, they, and the CLS attorneys down here have given us um, that information, which is really, really great uh, for us um, and, and their willingness to be a part of this solution. And then I gotta just say, working with our judges and our courts, you know, every judge is an independent actor who uses their own decision. You can't tell them what to do. Um, and, and the ability to, for all of them to, to understand the value of what we're doing across you know, you know, six counties, to understand that and to try to, and to order it and to make it work um, has been a really, a really positive. And, and we've had a really good success rate with, with our mediation. And, and when we haven't, they've clarified their, their issues and they're usually not rent related. They're usually some some other thing. And we don't have lawyers for every tenant. There's no way we could even come close to providing lawyers for every every tenant down here. But if but we have really good mediators and reconciliation folks. And that has been um, the ability to have something like that, I think is giving people access to resources that they might not know and giving them solutions, hopefully in some time for to find solutions, which has been pretty beneficial. Uh, I'm worried about the the continuation. I mean, this is not going to just go away and when everybody's vaccinated, the financial impact is going to continue. And, and um, But uh, I think if we work together and you all keep doing what you're doing to, to reach out to these areas, areas like us who don't have the same resources and share your knowledge is really a, a, a positive thing. So it's not all doom and gloom here on Sarah Day to Day. Um, we also like to talk about some positive things. Uh, so what ideas or solutions are you seeing that address some of these access to justice issues, um, especially dealing with evictions? And if you have one, if you could share a um, success story telling clients, um, helping them out with their housing situations during COVID. I love Boulder's program that's providing a lawyer for every tenant in eviction court. Um, COVID-19 COVID eviction defense program and C uh, Colorado Poverty Law Project are doing great work. Um, Colorado Coalition of Manufactured Homeowners, also known as Kokomo, is really building power um, amongst manufactured homeowners. Uh, and City of Longmont's mediation program run by Susan Spaulding was an inspiration uh, for the long-term benefits of building a culture of collaboration for an entire community. The, the positive note one, um, this really is a story best told by our housing attorney, Stephen Brown, but I'll convey that having a lawyer is a game changer for everyone he's helped. People go from hopeless um, to hopeful after the first consultation when they know at a minimum they have some time to figure out their next step. Um, he is changing lives for the better every day, and we're grateful for the funding and support from our community that makes his work and, and the work of our staff, of our entire staff possible. Um, so I think... Colorado has been really great at um, providing funding, both for more attorneys. Uh, they they just they passed a bill to provide additional eviction defense funding throughout the state, 
and then also a lot more rental assistance funding. I think those are both, I mean, that's the, the mm. rental arrears assistance is truly what we need right now. We, people need money to pay their rent. Um, I do think that other states have, ha, are doing better at getting the money into the hands of the tenants and the landlords. I think, um, I think the organizations and the agencies that are um, help, helping to distribute the money, we, we need to streamline it and make the process faster and more user-friendly. Um, obviously the clients we're assisting have the help of, have, of us, of lawyers and paralegals who can help navigate the applications. But I think that for um, people doing it on their own tenants, it might be complicated. And it can be very time consuming. And a lot of times, like I mentioned, these cases move fast. There's not a lot of time to get the money um, before the eviction could happen. So um, I think that, that that's something some other states are doing really well. Um, and I think just overall, CLS has been really good at adapting to remote work, um, figuring out ways to reach tenants. We've created in the Denver practice, we created, like I said, a, on, an online or a phone system for, for so that tenants can reach us when they have answers due even that same day, we can help people do answers. Um, I just think in this time, everyone needs to be flexible. And I've seen that a lot. A lot of organizations are being flexible. A lot of, um, a lot more collaboration is happening. Um, you know, I think organizations like COVID Eviction Defense and um, Colorado Center for Law and Poverty or I always get the acronyms mixed up, but um, they, you know, they're stepping up. And I think just the more people there are helping tenants stay housed, the better it is. And, and thankfully, because of this funding, that's definitely there's going to be more attorneys. Um, my, I don't have a specific success story, but I, I just think, as I mentioned, we've been able to help dozens of tenants stop their evictions by by helping them you know, navigate the varying executive orders. I mean, especially the CDC order requires tenants to give their landlords a declaration saying, you know, I am at risk of eviction. I've had a loss of income and several other factors before the moratorium applies to them. And that's not intuitive. A lot of tenants don't know that. So just being able to be, to, to get tenants that form, get it into the hands of the landlords and stop the evictions. I mean, that there have been, dozens of tenants we've done that for and then that buys time to try and get the money from the rental assistance so um, I think that we've been able to set up a pretty good system of making sure that as many tenants come to us we can keep housed as possible. Thank you to Liz Jones for joining us in our pro bono corner and thank you to Amanda Pearson, Megan O'Byrne, and Jenny Weary for joining us for our interview. Also, thank you to our listeners of this episode of Stairway to ATJ. And be sure to check out other CBA podcasts, including the Modern Law Revolution and Getting Legal with It. If you have any ATJ subject ideas that you'd like us to cover on this show, please feel free to email us at atjpodcast.cobar.org. I am Anthony Ferrer. Be good to each other. And I'm Mia Kotnick. Keep climbing, stay curious, and come volunteer with us. 